everyone here again. Um, seen so, some people I haven't seen in quite a while, and as, some faces I don't know. Welcome to City Reform Church. I also want to welcome you, those of you at home as well, who are, who are watching in uh, faithfully, or perhaps for your first time or as a guest. Uh, it's good to have you to join us. We, uh, in the season of Lent, have picked up a study of the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, this is our third Sunday on that. And our reading this morning comes from Ecclesiastes 3, what is uh, easily the most well-known of the whole book, arguably of, for many people, in the whole Bible. And so this morning, I'll just be reading um, through verse 15. I'm not going not gonna to discuss um, 16. We'll come back to that. So hear God's word to us this morning from Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 15. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what has been planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that every man should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is the gift of God to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever and nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people might fear him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. The word of the Lord. Father, we, we are in times that we do not understand your judgments in history, your ways are beyond us. We do pray, God, that you would be with us and you would teach us and instruct us from your word this morning what it means to trust you through the various seasons and times of our life, the joyous times and the difficult times. Help us to, to know that you are with us, Lord, and that as the teacher says, you make everything beautiful in its own time. Instruct us this morning, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's been almost a year since the United States was gripped by a coronavirus pandemic. And we're coming up on nearly one year of lockdowns and social distancing 
that has fundamentally altered the fabric of our everyday lives. The last time we met together as a church in which everybody could be here without masks and social distancing was March 8th, 2020. Someone asked me the other day, when do you think we'll be able to meet again? (laughs) As we did, and I said, I have no idea. We are approaching um, 500,000 deaths. That's a half a million people in America that have died from the virus, which is more than World War I, World War II, and the Vietnam War added together. In dealing with the global pandemic would have been enough for one year, right? If only it was the pandemic that we are dealing with. But there's a lot more that's happened. In the spring, An unarmed black man named George Floyd was brutally killed for the world to see by a white police officer. All of it was caught on film, and it was something of a tipping point that led to mass protests across the nation for racial justice and forced virtually every single American to the table uh, for a conversation about racial justice. And those conversations, frankly, have not gone so well. We have seen uh, left-wing violence. We have seen right-wing violence. Across many cities in the United States, especially over the summer, there was rioting and looting and the burning of buildings and physical assaults. Just south of us in Kenosha in late August, after Jacob Blake was shot, um, that of course led to more protests and counter-protests and actually people were killed Protesters and counter-protesters assaulting one another and it left people dead. And all this was happening in our country as we are undergoing one of the hardest fought, most bitter and divisive elections in recent memory. There is a sense in which we as a nation were undergoing this great separation, this deep internal conflict, something of a cultural civil war And the way things were framed for us, whether this is actually the reality or not, is that there are two Americas. You have to choose. Which one do you belong to? Whose side are you on? And each candidate represented a different vision and a different identity for America that we were supposed to choose. And these divisions, of course, reached their peak. Uh, Extraordinary, unprecedented storming of the US Capitol to to, to protest and prevent the ratification of the, of the presidential election. And that's to say nothing at all about what has occurred in our lives personally, the things we've experienced, or what our church has experienced in this past year. There is a sense in which we are overwhelmed by history, this overwhelmingness of history. Things are happening so fast, right? We don't have time to process the change, and we feel overwhelmed by events that we hardly and scarcely have begun to understand their meaning. Where is God in the storm of all these events? What is God doing in history? As I contemplated these questions, I was reminded of Abraham Lincoln's uh, second inaugural address, which he gave when he was reelected to be president of the United States in 1865 as the United States was in the midst of civil war another overwhelming season of history, and Lincoln tries to make sense of history in a nation that's torn by war. I want to read you a few lines from that speech. Lincoln says, 
Neither party, that is the North and the South, neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the course of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each evokes his aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been fully answered. The Almighty has his own purposes. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that the mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn from the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it must be said again, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous. Lincoln recognized that the almighty hand of providence was at work beneath the surface of the events of civil war, and yet he refuses to presume to understand what God is doing, on whose side God is, what the outcome and the meaning of it all will be. For Lincoln, God cannot be constricted to the north or to the south to support one side against another, despite the fact that there is a very clear moral issue at stake, that of slavery. But instead, he calls us, he calls the nation at that time to humble itself before the awesome and mighty events of war, to recognize that the, behind all of these things are the inscrutable judgments of God in history working themselves out. And at a time when it would have been very easy to focus on one party, bad actors, those who are doing just or those who are doing unjust, Lincoln turns our attention to God to God as the mysterious, but also primary actor of history. All of our attempts to make sense of the events of our lives is connected with our desire to have control over our lives. Our attempts to give meaning to history, meaning to the history of our own lives personally is connected with our desire to have control. So, to be able to explain the meaning of an event is a basis for being able to predict the future, to anticipate similar events and perhaps to prevent them or to pursue them. Prediction is the basis of planning, right? It's hard to plan when you don't know what the future will bring. And planning, of course, is the basis of taking control of our lives and of history. But this presumes a great deal about our grasp of time and of history. It presumes that we as human beings are the ones that make history, that humans are the primary actors and movers of time. But this, of course, is neither true when you just look at time itself and our experience of it, nor is it true according to the scriptures. According to the Bible, God is a primary actor of history to which all human actions are subject and response. And that's really what the central message of Ecclesiastes 3 is all about. For everything there is a season and a time 
for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. This is one of the most well-known passages of Scripture that you will sometimes hear recited at at weddings, or not weddings so much, but funerals and momentous occasions from Christians to non-Christians alike. But I think much of the time we, we misunderstand in a very subtle way the meaning of this poem. We think that the focus is upon our decisions of what human action is appropriate for a specific occasion. So at a funeral, right, you're supposed to mourn. At a wedding, you dance. Some occasions, it's important to keep silent, and some occasions, it's important to speak up. We need to choose and decide when, right? This, of course, presumes that the actions of the poem that it lists are prescriptive rather than descriptive. But this, again, is, I think, a very subtle misunderstanding of what the poem is about. This poem is not a prescription of things that we should do at different times. It is rather a description of seasons of our life that are thrust upon us without our choosing. The whole point of the poem and the prose that comes after it is to make the point that the seasons of our life are outside of our control. We are subjects of time, not the masters of time. We might be able to set our calendars, but we don't get to choose the seasons of our life. You don't get to choose when you're born. You don't get to choose when you die. You don't get to choose peace times or war times. You don't get to choose seasons of weeping or seasons of laughing, seasons of sowing or seasons of tearing. They simply come to you. They come to you. Kind of like fall and winter come to us, whether we want them to come or not. We don't get to choose the seasons of embracing or not embracing. And this is painfully illustrated by the past year of this pandemic. We are living through a time to refrain from embracing. It's not what we have chosen. It is not what we want, <laughs> but it is what we have been given. The constructive wisdom of the teacher here is, and of this poem, has to do with learning to make adjustments to the seasons. Wisdom is learning and discerning the season of life and making the right adjustments. And the failure, um, the failure to do so is the source of a lot of anxiety and turmoil in, in our life. We operate with the presumption that we are mostly in control of our times, of our lives, and of even of history itself. So when a season of uprooting or weeping or tearing or war comes along, we get frustrated. Surely somebody is to blame, and superficially speaking, yes. We get angry, we get anxious, we live defensively and reactively. We don't want to weep, we want to laugh. We don't want to mourn, we want to dance. We don't want to have to refrain from embracing, but we want to embrace. We want love, not hate, peace, not war. But we do not have a choice in the matter. We do not have a choice in the matter. We can set our calendars, but we do not choose the seasons of our lives. Wisdom is learning to make adjustments in your expectations of 
life to the seasons. Foolishness is refusing to do so. To not adjust to the seasons is like dressing for summer when it's winter outside, right? Potentially you could get frostbite. But unfortunately, none of us are do well at making adjustments to the seasons, to changes in life. We hold tenaciously to our schedules, to our plans. We want to be in control. That is the message again and again. We want to be in control. We need life to be predictable. And the problem with changing seasons of life is change always means loss. Things that we love, things that comfort us, we lose them. And in the fear of losing something we love, something that comforts us, we we hold it even more tightly and we double down in the midst of change to what is familiar and what is comforting. And this, of course, can lead us to live quite inflexibly and rigidly because of what we're afraid to lose. But when we live this way, we end up losing even more. And what we lose is the possibility of joy, joy in life. When we are unwilling to let go of what has been lost because of the arrival of a new season, there we aren't able to receive what is good in a new season. Despite the difficulty that new seasons and suffering brings on, there is always the possibility of joy. And discerning a season in life and making adjustments is another way to talk about what does it mean for me to trust God anew in a new situation, in a new circumstance in life. That's what God calls us to do, is to trust him anew. This means that we have to change as people. This means that we have to grow. You cannot say the same. Now, that's the one aspect of that poem that I think is really important to, to get. We're not in control of the seasons of our life. We don't set the seasons. But the other part of this poem that I think is important to, to note, and this is another aspect of wisdom, is there is no discernible pattern of the, the, of the poem. If you look, it's not as if like everything on the left side is good and everything on the right side is bad. It's, just, it's a sort of hodgepodge. It goes back and forth. There's no ordering. There's no ordering or predictability. And I think that, again, reflects the nature of our experience of life in the seasons. Unlike the seasons of the calendar year, you know, spring, summer, fall, and winter, the seasons of life are unpredictable. We don't know when they come. We don't know how long they'll stay, and, and, and something new will come. Again, this is a very frustrating experience because we like to, like to make predictions. We like to make plans because it's a way for us to have stability and sense of control over our lives. And of course, there are plans that we can make. There are things that we can count on. And yet the most momentous things in our life, times of mourning, times of death, times of war, These are not things you can plan for. These are not follow the seasons of the the year. They are unpredictable and their meaning quite inscrutable beyond finding out. So what's the point of it all? What's the point of it all? What does the worker gain from his toil? Asked the teacher. And the worker here is simply the human being busy and active in the world, a doer. And the toil refers simply to the business of life. What does the worker gain from the business of life? What 
what's the point of all the doing and acting of our lives in the midst of a world that doesn't seem to add up or make sense? The teacher has one, one answer, I think. It is that we might fear God. It is that we might fear God. According to the teacher, our experience of time should humble us, cause us to fear the Lord. It should remind us that we are creatures whose existence is like a breath. It should cause us to look for understanding beyond the mere events themselves to the inscrutable judgments of God in creation. We don't direct and control time. God does. The teacher says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its own time. Also, he has put eternity into the hearts of man. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Friends, as we wrestle (laughs) with history, as we wrestle with the difficult times and circumstances of our life, realize that you are not wrestling simply with circumstances, with people, with movements, or choices of mere human beings. You are wrestling with God himself. God has ordained the times and the seasons of our life. He has ordained the good times and the bad times. He desires for us to trust him through the good times and the bad times. God does not wish us harm, nor is he pleased when evil befalls us, but God is not standing back in history, watching things go by, intervening here and there, letting things take their course. No, God is more like a great orchestra conductor who is directing all the seemingly random events and times and seasons, all the good and the bad and the ugly of history, to one day it becomes a beautiful symphony revealed at the end of history. He will make everything beautiful in its own time. He already hears the final melodious score of history, which for us in our time sounds like simply the cacophony of noises. He sees already what we cannot see, and we must learn to trust God through all the seasons of our life. The fear of the Lord is learning to accept the seasons of our life as from the hand of providence and learning to trust God, no matter how painful or difficult the circumstances, knowing that he will make everything beautiful in its own time. But in the light of the unpredictability of life and of our times, in the light of the fact that we scarcely understand half the things that we've gone through, in the light of the fact that we cannot direct our own destiny, how should we live? What should we do from day to day? The teacher reminds us again of one of his central themes throughout the whole book, which is the theme of joy. I just want to remind you again, because this seems like a grim book, but it's really a book about joy. What he tells us is this, is that that when we live within our limits as creatures, when we learn to trust God, when we give up our godlike ambitions over time, we have access to joy. 
I perceive that there is nothing better for them to do than to be joyful, says the teacher, to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. See, we cannot control the seasons of our life, but when we receive all the seasons of life as from the hand of God, we can receive them as gift, and we can enjoy them for what they are. That doesn't mean all that comes to us in a season is gift. But the Lord does offer joy. You might call this philosophy, it's sort of a carpe diem, seize the day, but a God-centered understanding of seizing the day. Then we don't know what tomorrow will bring, we don't know what the future will hold, but there are many joys and many pleasures and many good things that we can do right now. And so what the teacher is saying is live in the moment. Live in the moment. Experience and receive as a gift the joy that is right in front of you. And I'll be honest, there's a lot about this time and season with pandemic and lockdown that, that I, makes me very unhappy. But you know what? There's actually lots of little joys that I've been able to experience, our family's been able to experience. Do we want our lives like this? <laughs> for the long term, no, but there's joy. I think that's what the, the teacher is saying, like there is joy, and this is a gift of God. He is present within us through these seasons. But the teacher also has another phrase that I think is pregnant with meaning. God has put eternity into the hearts of men. God has put eternity into the hearts of men and women. What does this mean? Eternity in our hearts is what distinguishes our experience of time from the rest of creation. We don't experience time like animals experience time. We cannot fully dwell completely in a single moment. We have a consciousness and a yearning for that which transcends the present moment. We're always seeking to make sense of our past experiences. We're always looking to the future and contemplating what is ahead. Eternity in our hearts is a longing to make sense of the whole of our lives and the world beyond the present moment. There must be something forever, something enduring, there must be a line drawn through all the random experiences of my life to make sense. Eternity in our hearts is our search for a story to make sense of all of the seemingly random seasons and puzzle pieces of our existence. But even more, eternity in our hearts is our search for God. It's our search for God through all the seasons and the times of our life when we are children when we're adults, and our good times and our bad times, where, where are you, Lord? Where are you in the midst of all the seasons of my life? What have you been doing all these years? Where have you been leading me? And how do all these random pieces fit together into one story? These are the questions that St. Augustine asked in his spiritual autobiography, The Confessions. In this work, a middle-aged Augustine, he was now a bishop, looks back upon the whole of his life, 
from childhood up to the present, and he's seeking to understand the events and the seasons and how they all fit together in the light of God's presence. Augustine was converted to Christianity later in life, and prior to that, he was a very passionate man who experienced a lot of different things, various religions and philosophies. He had many lovers, and in one lover, he had a son. He has a great deal of regret about his past, things that he uh, regrets having done, mistakes and seasons of his life. He's lost many friends and family, his mother. And he keeps asking this question, Lord, Lord, where are you in the midst of it all? How do I make sense of this? And he describes his life in this way. He says, my life is, it's, it's like scattered across many different times, an order in whose order I do not understand. And towards the end of the book, reflecting on the nature of time itself, he comes to um, something of a spiritual breakthrough. And he says this, it's in your worship folder in the reflections, but he says, how my life is stretched in several directions. He, the word there in Latin is dis, distension. My life is distended in several different directions of time. And now my years pass in groans, and you, Lord, are my consolation. You are my eternal Father. But I am scattered in times whose order I do not understand. The storms of incoherent events tear to pieces my thoughts the inmost entrails of my soul, until that time when, purified and molten by the fire of your love, I flow together to merge into you. Then I shall find stability and solidity in you, in your truth, which imparts form to me. Augustine realizes that he is not the author of his own life, but God is that the burden of making sense of his life and its meaning does not fall ultimately on him, but on God. And that even though he does not understand the times and the seasons and the events of his life, he does know that someday when he is fully united with the God of love, his story, his life will flow together into one and to merge into something that is coherent and stable, something that is beautiful. And this really is, I think, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. This is the gospel promise, I think, that you see at the very end of this passage. The teacher says, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. God seeks what has been driven away. Another way you might translate that is that God will chase down the past. God will make history to give an account of itself. And this is a promise. It is a promise of redemption extending to even the times of our lives. This is God's promise of redemption that extends to all the seasons and times of our life. Those things that seemed lost forever in history, all the wasted time, the tragic loss, the broken relationships that never were fixed, the conversations you wanted to have but never could have, the evils that you suffered at the hands of others, the mistaken periods of your life where you seemed to just be heading in the wrong direction and you didn't even know it, God will chase down the past 
and make it give an account of itself. He will redeem the past. That which is driven away, he will track down and he will redeem. He redeems the past and he will give our lives the wholeness, a new form he will impart to it. And the way he does this is by engrafting our life, our times, our story into the life of his own son, who himself became a creature subjected to time. United with Jesus Christ, our lives become written over in a sense, reinterpreted in the light of Jesus' dying and rising. It is his cross and it is his resurrection which give our lives new form that pull all the pieces, the, the confused and random and broken pieces together into a coherent whole that will someday be our healing and our wholeness, that someday, as the teacher says, will be beautiful in its time. Let's pray. Lord, we do not understand the order of our lives, the seasons, the things we've undergone. We do not understand your judgments. We don't understand the bad times. We don't understand the evils that sometimes come to us. And yet we know, Lord, that you are the almighty judge of history, directing things to their course. Lord, teach us to trust you anew in the season that we find ourselves in. Help us to turn our hearts and our attentions to Jesus Christ, to see in the cross what seemed to be the ultimate end, the ultimate loss, the ultimate failure forever. On the other side was resurrection, and we do not know, Lord, what is the link or what is the thing that gets us from cross to resurrection, but we believe that cause and effect is of no consequence, but cross and resurrection is. And so we take comfort in that. Lord, make us beautiful in your time. Help us to, to revere and to fear you and to trust you. In the name of Jesus, amen.